declare the victory that we have in Jesus together. I love those lyrics, and uh, hopefully you've experienced that victory and that power. And uh, Matt was just praying from Romans chapter 8 when he talks about nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You, I don't know if you've read Romans chapter 8, but it'd be a great passage as a follow-up to today's message to study. And it says there that we are more than conquerors. Meditate on what it means to be more, have the victory, that's awesome. What does it mean to have more than conquering over whatever it is that might be holding you sin or whatever it is that hinders you from Jesus Christ? What does it mean to be more than a conqueror? And we're going to talk about that today. We're going to look at a passage of scripture, Mark chapter 1, uh, where there's a guy that's set free uh, from bondage. And before we get to that, I'm going to have a friend of mine come up here. He's going to share a testimony about how God set him free. But I want to give you a heads up. Um, if you have a, a young one in here today, that today's message is a PG-13 type message, the testimony that we'll share in just a moment. It's a PG-13 type uh, testimony that's going to be shared. So I would encourage you, even right now, I'll make a couple announcements in a minute. If you want to gather your things together, and if you have a young one in here and you want to utilize our Bridge Kids Ministry, uh, zero through fifth grade, um, then they are just over in the other hallway. And I'll give you just a moment to do that. No one will think anything if you decide to step out with a PG-13 message and our junior high ministry is going on right now too, but I'm going to tell you, they've already heard everything that's going to be said today. And so if they're in here and they want to stay, uh, you're welcome to stay, but you can utilize that ministry as well down the same hallway. Um, but while you're doing that, and some of you are making some transitions, just a couple things. Maybe you're new here today, you've never been here before, you're just new to this church. After the service, you're going to see some people out in the lobby that are holding baskets and collecting $1 bills. We do a dollar offering whenever a month has, a fi- has five Sundays in it. So that doesn't happen every month in the, in the year, but there are multiple months that it does, and what we do is we give that money, 100% of that money, to either something that's taking place, an event, or an initiative that's happening in our community, and try to connect our community to Jesus in that way, or one of our strategic partners that are doing something. Now, let me explain kind of how that works as a whole. Every week we have an offering, and we get these black boxes that we put out, and we, people put their tithes and their offerings in there, and, and a good percentage of our church gives online from every offering that comes into our church. Uh, we take at least 10% of that, and we give that away. So we challenge you to tithe, but we want to tithe as a church as well. And so we give that to strategic partners, which are oftentimes local ministries um, here in town that are having an impact either locally or around the globe. SCA is one of them. Hope Reigns is one of them. Gateway Pregnancy Center, you heard from uh, Miss Wendy recently, is one of those ministries. But then when we have a fifth Sunday, we have these dollar offerings. So if you just have a dollar bill in your wallet or in your purse, you drop it in those baskets, 100% of that, not just 10%, but 100% of that goes to those uh, ministries. And today's dollar offering goes to Gateway, and Gateway's doing an initiative where they're trying to get abortion-minded women at the internet um, phase when people are searching for what they're going to do, abortion-minded women to come and visit them and have an ultrasound and hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so the dollar offering will go towards that today. If you see that happening out in the lobby, just something that's become part of who we are as a church, doing that on the, on the fifth Sundays. And then another announcement is you received an email this week, an update on our building and the building project that we're having a significant meeting um, this past Friday, and you were asked to pray for that. There was a lot of information in that email. I won't try to go over all that. If you didn't get the email and you'd like it, email our office, and uh, we'll make sure you get it. And if you don't receive your, our emails, just sign up on your worship program today and ask for that, and we'll make sure you get on that list in the future. Uh, but we asked you to pray about that meeting that was happening this past Friday. And it was evident that you prayed. God showed up at that meeting. It was um, clear that his presence was there. It was clear that you were praying. And my response to the meeting is, is it went great. But we're waiting to hear back some information from our neighbors. We're meeting with our neighbors. We've already begun the process with the city and moving forward with getting the easement that we have. And they've told us that we're going to get it. But we're trying to be good neighbors and uh, work through some things with them um, specifically. And the, and the meeting was awesome. And so thank you for praying 
my challenge right now is just keep praying. And uh, we're supposed to hear back from them. They said in a week. So give us a week to maybe two weeks, depending on how all that goes. And uh, we'll give you the information. Hopefully I get to tell you everything that happened in that meeting at some point. But uh, thank you for praying, and uh, please keep doing that. And I'm going to ask my friend Chris Travis to come on up here. And uh, Chris, do you have the microphone? Do we move that? Oh, I left it right here. Here it is. <coughs> Chris, uh, Chris is, uh, many of you know him as a Sunday school teacher at our church, and he served on the mission field. And if you've ever stood next to him and worship, you know that he loves to sing and uh, worship Jesus. And uh, he's a great guy. been part of our church since before we even launched the church. He started coming as soon as we were here at the movie theater. And um, oftentimes you can bump into people at church, though, and you don't necessarily know all of their story. And Chris recently shared his story. It was about a month ago mm-hmm. at Celebrate Recovery. And uh, we're looking at a passage of scripture today where there's a guy that was in bondage. And part of Chris's story is uh, a long period of having a stronghold in his life, having some bondage in his life. And uh, Chris, would you like to share with Thanks, our church Scott. what that was? Yeah. Thanks for the opportunity. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, yeah, and I do want to share with my fellowship uh, what God's doing in my life. Um, in a, a stronghold, a bondage is, I think, an accurate way to describe a 30-year relationship with pornography, either looking at it or trying not to. Mm-hmm. Now, <clears throat> it'd be dishonest if, if we're all being honest that each one of us had lustful thoughts before, we've seen things that we wish we hadn't seen or shouldn't have seen. Um, but when you talk about a bondage, a stronghold, um, that doesn't just happen because of one glance or one thing. Can you tell us a little bit about how that has started in your life and kind of what that's meant? Um, I became a believer in Jesus Christ when I was 12. Uh, unfortunately, that's also when I was first exposed um, to pornography. My dad, who's a hero in my life, for whatever reason, decided to purchase a print copy and um, hid it in our uh, bathroom. I found it and at the onset of puberty uh, and the combination of that, these beautiful women in these hyper-sexualized settings, it was, it required too much maturity to navigate away from. Uh, I didn't have any mentorship and um, I began a pattern of behavior uh, which, you know, didn't stop. My intake was limited uh, as a as at that age, because we didn't have the internet, uh, and uh, by the time I got to uh, university, though the internet had had found its place in the world, and uh, my consumption rate went up tremendously. And, and in in I think some some relationship there between pornography and my level of promiscuity increased. And so I was now having uh, physical relationships with girls and sexual relationships with girls. And, uh, you know, that, that carried on. Uh, Three-quarters of the way through my college education, I was working in, uh, in Tennessee and uh, became uh, sexually intimate with a 30-year-old woman, an older woman, and uh, she became pregnant. Uh, she she told me it was a, there were problems with the pregnancy. She said it was ectopic. And when I told her I I was wasn't going to marry her, um, later on she 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 told me that the pregnancy ended. I later found out that it was actually an elective abortion. So 
my pattern of behavior that was influenced by pornography, uh, the selfish pattern of behavior now had put her in a situation where innocent blood was on her hands and innocent blood was on my hands. Now, I was a Christian, and I knew that what I was doing was wrong, um, but I wasn't, making, I wasn't making the right choices. I tried to, I, you know, at that point, you know, I'm, I'm confessing to brothers. I'm, I'm reading books that talk about that specific issue, and uh, I'm trying to change, but I, I can't. I can't change. So if you fast forward another 10 years to the age of 32, I, um, uh, I found a woman who is willing to marry me, and she knows my baggage. She's got baggage too, but, but she knows the, the, the problems that I have. She was naive enough to think that those problems would go away, and of course they didn't. And uh, not because you weren't trying, though. You're trying. That's right. Stuff. Yeah, and I was. So I'll give you some things that we we tried: um, confession, uh, Bible study, looking at books, trying to learn uh, the the reasons to stop. I mean, uh, inviting men over to my house to pray for me, to go over. It's a great chapter, Joshua seven, to look at when it comes to uh, fighting in community together. Uh, it, it just it wasn't it wasn't happening. So you know, I'd heard of celebrate recovery, uh, and I wanted to to get into the uh, the program. I guess is what you call it. And I've managed to get into a step group, and in the step group, you you're immersed in in the beatitudes and in the idea of uh, you know how the very first thing you learn step one is that you're powerless to control your own life, and that's an application of Matthew chapter five. Verse 3, which is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Realizing that I was out of control, that I had messed up my life so bad that I couldn't fix it, was a very powerful thought. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I also, as CR continued, you know, it, took, it takes about a year to go through a step group. As CR continued, uh, I saw God working in the lives of those men that I was in that group with. Now, they didn't have the same issue that I had. Uh, one guy was struggled with anger, another with control, another with alcoholism. But I saw God begin to work in their lives. And I realized there were miracles, every one of them. And I realized that God's working in my life, too. God, you know, the next thing I know, there's four months of sustained sobriety. So that was the thing for me. I couldn't go a, a long time without looking at it, And it, even though I tried. Um, I later realized, you know, a lot of the reason it, at, at, in my 40s that I was still looking at this stuff was not the same reason that it was when I first started. It was now it was because of the instant comfort that it would bring, given the fear of failure, the anxiety that I had at work. High pressure job, maybe relative to some of yours not, but to me it was high pressure, and uh, it was a source of comfort. Realizing this and realizing this lie that it was helpful also to, 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 to work out of it. And so, you know, when I look at my life, I, I see God incrementally building uh, in me the ability to be able to resist that temptation. I see him doing that over time. I see that doing that in the lives of other men. I will share with you that, that there's a man in, this, in our fellowship whose story is very similar to mine, but has 14 years of sustained sobriety um, over this issue in his life. And you've been just about 14 months, right? Yep, about 14 months. Mm-hmm. So to me, he's a hero, right? Yes, thank you. Thank you, Lord. 
it's something to be excited about. Um, uh, another fellow uh, had sobriety from this issue, uh, relapsed, and now he's on his second year of sustained sobriety. Uh, other men, other men uh, are still working through it and trying to figure out how to resist. What do you think one of the big differences was when you were struggling on your own, kind of, and trying to, you're trying to do the right things, trying to do the Christian stuff, accountability yeah. and reading the scriptures and stuff versus yeah. now, recognizing your powerlessness and mm -hmm. what, what's been the difference this time? Well, I would, I would say two things. One is there is no fix. There is no solution. Jesus is the only solution. But the way he worked most powerfully in my life was uh, a prolonged exposure to his scripture in community with like-minded, humble men who were trying to live the, the life of Christ. Amen. That is the, the most powerful thing that I've experienced personally in my life. Amen. Yeah. What would you say to somebody else here today? Yeah. Maybe they're not ready to make this known or yeah. do that kind of thing, but they're, they're trapped. Yeah. What would you say today? Well, you know, there's... There's, I, I think of three people. I think of the spouses, perhaps, that are going through that. Um, and I think of the fellows who are going through that, and then I think of our, our, our community. The, the, the spouses, it, it, wa it wasn't Denise's problem. She didn't cause it, okay? She didn't have nothing to do with it, anything to do with it. But she has definitely been part of the solution. You can be, too. For, for guys who are struggling with it now, uh, your enemy is not trying to break up your marriage. He is trying to kill you and your family. It is urgent. It is imperative that you confess, that you begin this road to recovery, whether it's with CR, whether it's with counseling, whatever. Keep coming back. And then the last thing I would say, and you cut me off here I'm, oh, if I start preaching. but God, There's enough room. Go ahead. Israel was strongest in the desert when they were in community and focused on God. They had fire before them, and they were a force to be reckoned with. When Achan was by himself, and he stole the coat and the little gold wedge, where were his buddies that had his back? And where was his wife? She knew. And that ultimately resulted in the death of many in that fellowship. We can be the other one. We can be strong together. And we can watch God redeem people, renew people, do the things that only he can do. I am happy, excited, encouraged to be part of this fellowship. It is a blessing to me and my, li my wife, my life, my family. And I would say, you can talk to me. You can talk to Denise. Um, she's the pretty one. <laughs> and um, uh, you can uh, find somebody, talk to them. I would say that. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Let me tell you why I wanted to hear that story. Obviously, one, this isn't just a, a male issue. Females struggle with pornography as well. But we're not just talking about pornography today. Uh, we're going to look at a passage of scripture. We're going to see a man that was in bondage and he's set free. And I want you to know that God still does that today. And I don't know what all of the issues are today. There's no way I could possibly know all of the issues, and some of you might not even know some of your own issues uh, today. But your issue might be the same as Chris's. It might be a sexual issue. It might not. It might be a food issue. It might be with alcohol. We heard somebody share that testimony a couple weeks ago. It might be with anger, with control. You might have an issue with jealousy. You might have unforgiveness in your life or shame that needs to be dealt with. But I want to ask you this question today. Is there an area of your life 
we are not experiencing the freedom of Christ. Because Jesus still sets the captives free. And we're going to see in this passage of Scripture today how he does that, why he does that, and why Jesus is the only one that can give true freedom. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 1. We're continuing the series that we've started in the Gospel of Mark. And I want you to know that God's still setting people free, and he can set you free today. What area of your life do you need to experience the freedom of Christ? Maybe some of you might think to yourself, you don't have an issue because you keep seeing something come up. Like maybe it's anger, right? The fruit of the Spirit would be peace and self-control. And you lose your temper and you say to yourself, well, that's not me. Well, you're lying to yourself. It keeps happening. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's obsessive thoughts. Maybe it's anxiety. Jesus can set you free. What we see happening in the passage of Scripture we're looking at today, we started in the book of Mark back in chapter 1, verse 1. And we saw this, the gospel of Jesus Christ telling the story of how Jesus sets people free from sin and from bondage and how he gives us new life in his son, Jesus Christ, and God's son, Jesus Christ. He uses unique people on a unique mission. And we saw the last time we met, we didn't meet last week because of the ice, but the last time we met, we saw that when Jesus calls people to come follow him, he calls them to surrender everything. We saw the disciples drop their nets. We saw them walk away from their family business. Some of you came forward that day and dealt with things that you needed to deal with. And some of you haven't done that yet, or maybe you did it when you got home. And Jesus asked us to surrender, surrender everything. He was out at the Sea of Galilee. He was calling some guys, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And now we see these guys, they're not out at the Sea of Galilee. They're in a synagogue, all four of them, plus Jesus. And Jesus is teaching at the synagogue. There's at least one man in this synagogue who's in bondage. Let's look at it. Mark chapter 1, verse 21. They, Peter and Andrew, James, John, and Jesus, went to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was the uh, most upscale town in this region. So they're in North Raleigh. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. The way the teachers of the law would oftentimes teach is they would teach about God. They would teach strung together quotations. They would regurgitate information that they had heard from other people about God. The way that Jesus taught was he didn't just teach about God, he taught for God. So he wasn't just sharing what other people had experienced, he was telling people what they themselves could experience. He didn't teach as the teachers of the law. God is one who had authority. People were amazed at that. Verse 23, just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out. In quotation marks, here's what he said. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus, verse 25, response. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly all over the whole region of Galilee. And so here we have the situation where Jesus goes into this upscale town, Capernaum, and everybody's probably looking nice. They're coming to the synagogue, they're worshiping, and there's this guy that no one recognizes at first, or at least they don't know his issue, and he cries out, he's demon-possessed. Here's the big idea of what happens in this, this whole sermon that we're going to talk about today. In this whole passage of Scripture, John shares it with us. The Son sets him free, because remember, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Mark chapter 1, verse 1. When the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. What we're talking about today is true freedom. But here's what we need to know about true freedom. True freedom is only, only exclusive truth, only found in Jesus Christ. 
True freedom is not found in a program. True freedom is not found if you just got the right marriage. True freedom is not found if you had the right job. True freedom is not found in all of your dreams becoming a reality. True freedom is only found in the person of Jesus Christ. And why is that? Well, you look back at the passage, and whenever things are repeated in Scripture, they're important. The author's emphasizing them. Did you notice in verse 22 and in verse 27, if you have a copy, you can look, the same thing is said. In verse 22, the people are amazed, and what we see is an amazing authority. They're amazed at Jesus. Why are they amazed at Jesus? I bet you Jesus' teaching was incredible. When Jesus taught, people probably had aha moments, like, oh, I, didn't ever, I never thought of it that way. When Jesus taught, he probably said things that put words on stuff that people already knew were true. They just didn't know how to say it. When Jesus taught, there were probably people that thought, oh, the scriptures are so hard to apply. And when Jesus is teaching, I see how it directly applies to my life. Jesus is probably a really good teacher. But did you see why they were amazed? It wasn't just they were amazed that he was a good teacher, not just the content of his teaching, but the authority with which he taught. They're amazed, the authority. Then verse 27, after he does this miracle, you see again, the people are amazed. They're not talking about the content of what he said, it's what he just did. They said, what is this new teaching? And with authority. Here's why it's an exclusive truth about Jesus. Jesus is the only one that can give true freedom because Jesus is the only one that has the ultimate authority over heaven and earth, over your sin, over mine, over every thought we have, over everything. He has all authority, so he's the only one that can be the source of true freedom. And so today we're not just talking about freedom as a concept. And man, if you did these things, if you had these disciplines, Jesus is the only one that can give freedom because he's the liberator. So try and imagine being at the synagogue this day. And the synagogue, you need to understand, is different than the temple. The temple is where you would go and do sacrifices, and that's where big crowds would gather. The synagogue was not the temple. It's not the same thing. So when you read in the scriptures, the synagogue, it's not the same as when they went to the temple. The synagogue oftentimes is more casual in a smaller environment. The requirement to have a synagogue was just that you had to be able to have uh, 10 Jewish men of meritable age living in a town. We don't know how big this synagogue is exactly, but we know they have a synagogue ruler. This is important to note. The synagogue ruler we find out later here in Capernaum is a man by the name of Jairus. Write that down if you take notes. It'll be important later in the message. Jairus is the synagogue ruler. Now, a synagogue ruler wasn't the same as a pastor. Synagogue's not the same as church. No, but the primary role of the synagogue was to teach the Torah, the, early, the first books of the Bible. And the synagogue ruler didn't do that, though. He was more of an administrator. He made sure the building got taken care of. He made sure there was somebody there to teach, and he could pick any qualified man from amongst the congregation to teach. And that might only be 10 guys to pick. But there was a a freedom in the synagogue where if you had a recognized teacher, someone who had a reputation as a rabbi, and he showed up at your synagogue, you could have him as a guest speaker. That's what Jesus is doing here. This isn't the first time Jesus taught. He already has a reputation as a teacher. Now, in Mark chapter 1, it's the first time we see him teaching in a synagogue. But when you're studying... Mark sometimes doesn't tell us details that Matthew tells us, that Luke tells us. Those are called the synoptic gospels. They share the same stories oftentimes where they share different details. And so if you notice here, there's a lot said about Jesus' teaching. It has authority. It's a new kind of teaching. People are amazed at it. There's not one word of his teaching required that's mentioned here. And so the question naturally becomes, if you're studying your Bibles, what was Jesus teaching? What was he saying? And if you go to Luke's account, what you find out is we see what Jesus was teaching in the synagogues. And in his teaching, before we even get to this point. So even before this, he had taught at his hometown synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. And what he does is he opens up the scroll from Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 61 and verses 1 and 2, and he starts to teach them. And he says this, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Remember what Mark told us? 
Mark chapter 1, verse 1, the beginning of the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What was he teaching? And we saw last, in the last passage we looked at in verse 15, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. It's good news. Jesus has come. He's going to set the captives free. Luke chapter 4, he says it like this as he's reading Isaiah 61. Preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Or some of your translations may say the year of jubilee. We know from the book of Leviticus that when he talks about the year of jubilee, that's, that's something that happens once every 55 years where debts are forgiven. People there are slaves to their masters are then given their freedom. Slaves are set free. And so can you imagine being at this synagogue? Maybe you're the demon-possessed guy. Maybe you're somebody else. You've got another issue, but you're in bondage. And Jesus comes and he starts sharing. He's declaring the year of the Lord's favor. He's declaring that debts are going to be forgiven and you've got an incredible sin debt. That slaves are being set free. These words have to sound amazing, and we don't know everything that Jesus says. You know, when Jesus teaches, we get lots of sermons of Jesus. In some of the other Gospels, in Matthew, we get the Sermon on the Mount. He starts off, like with the, Chris even mentioned in his story, the Beatitudes are the beginning of that. And then we get in the next passage, uh, what's the vision of our church, that we'd be a city on a hill, the light of the world. And, and we get all these things, but you don't get every word that Jesus teaches. So I wonder when Jesus is teaching Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and he says that I came to set the captives free. I came to give freedom, and I'm going to release the oppressed. I'm going to declare the year of the Lord's favor, the year of jubilee, if he shares it all from other parts of the Old Testament. Because that's what the synagogue was for, was to teach the Torah. I wonder if he goes to the book of Exodus. That's the ultimate example of slaves being set free in the book of Exodus. I don't know if you know that book or not, but the people of Israel, God's people, have been held in bondage for four hundred years. Now think about what that's like to cry out for release from being a captive and for the beginning of your life to the end of your life and from the beginning of the next generation's life to the end of their life. And the next gener- generations are dying off and it seems like God's not even listening but then the book of Exodus it says that God heard their cries. And then you see that God has the authority to set them free from all the oppression they experienced, all the bondage they experienced. I was thinking about it this week and I remember one time I was with a class, a class on the Pentateuch when I was in undergrad in college in the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible, and we were studying that. We went to New York City and the Metropolitan Museum. Sometimes you go through museums and you just, it's like old stuff, artifacts, I don't know how to read hieroglyphics, hey, cool Egyptian looking thing, and you just kind of see stuff. And we had these sheets that we were filling out, we were doing these facts, and we walked through, we were looking at all the artifacts from the time period of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And I remember there's this one cabinet and one of my classmates was down on his knees, he was looking at some of the artifacts in the cabinet, and he started crying. I had even less compassion when I was a college student than I do now. <laughs> and I looked at the guy and goes, what's wrong with you? Like, we're looking at old stuff. What's wrong with you? And he was looking at the bricks. I don't know if you know the story. But in Exodus, the Egyptian slave masters took away straw from the bricks. And he was looking at the bricks that were made without straw versus the bricks that were made with straw. And the bricks without straw were a fraction of the size. And they were required to keep the same quota with a fraction of the materials. And he was weeping because he was saying, these, these were God's people. These are our brothers. And the impression that they were experiencing. But did you know the great event in Exodus is when they're set free and they cross the Red Sea? And God shows he's got the power over hearts. 
He's got the power over enemies. He's got the power over darkness. He's got the power over, and there's many plagues that go through the book of Exodus. He's got the power of all those, over all those false gods of Egypt. And I wonder if Jesus is preaching that. And I wonder what the people are thinking as some of them are in bondage or they have loved ones that they know that are in bondage. And Jesus is saying, I came to set the captives free. It's, gonna, it's happening now. And some of you have seen uh, recently the prisoners that were held in, in Iran that were released the prisoner swap recently and without getting into all the politics of all that. Can you imagine what it was like to be some of those guys that were in prison in Iran? Pastor Saeed, some of you have been praying for. There was the journalist guy, the Jason guy that was over there for a long time. I saw one of the guys that's probably the least known, at least least known to me of them that was being interviewed on the news. His name was Matthew. He's a college student. And he was talking about how he went over there. He wanted to study Farsi, wanted to learn the language, wanted to see if he could make a difference in the Middle East. And I uh, didn't own hardly anything. Had like some newspapers, a couple books and had felt like he had done what he was going to do. He was walking on the main street in Iran, and he said he was on his way to buy his ticket to come back home because he felt like his time in Iran was done, and a Hyundai Sonata pulled up. He said, they all drive Hyundai Sonatas. A Hyundai Sonata pulls up, three guys not in uniform say, are you Matthew? He says, yes. They pull him into the car. Next thing he knows, he's under arrest. He doesn't even know why. Then they start accusing him. They're accusing him of all kinds of conspiracies and his plan to overthrow the government there. And they're saying that his name's tied to bank accounts with millions of dollars in it. And he's like, all I own is papers and some books and a little bit of clothes. I was planning on going home. And they said, it's not our plan. You're the one with the crazy plan. And you've got weapons stashed all over the place. And they lock him in this prison and tell him, you're never leaving. Can you imagine that? He said he's just over six feet tall in the room that he was locked in was six feet by about seven feet. He said he could touch three walls at the same time, lay there, there's no bed, lay on the floor. I think that's where you're going to live forever. And he doesn't know all the politics of it, but then 29 days later, he gets let out. Can you imagine being told then you're given your freedom? Imagine what that would even seem like. Imagine what it would be like to your family back home. Imagine what it would be like to you. Here's Jesus speaking to people. Some of them are in bondage, and he's saying, I'm set, I can set the captives free. I'm here to declare debts are forgiven. Slaves are set free. But if you've been to the synagogue long enough, Maybe you've seen some traveling charlatans. Maybe you've heard people say stuff that sounds too good to be true. And the question you'd naturally have is, big words, Jesus, but can you back them up? I think it's significant that Mark doesn't give us any of the actual words that Jesus says in his teaching, but instead shows us the action. Because that's what's most important, isn't it? Not just can you say big stuff. What do you do? I was reading a book the other day, and a young lady was sharing uh, her, a story about her dad. Her name was Cynthia, and she was talking about a uh, time when they were planning a date. When she was 12 years old, dad was working for this company, and he was going to be giving a speech in San Francisco, and they had been planning this date for months. And she went through all the details of the date in her story. She was talking about how they were going to, you know, at the end of the seminar, she was going to come for like the last half hour. They were going to meet at the back of the room before anybody could corner her dad and start talking to him about his speech or any of that stuff. They were going to slide out the back, and they were going to hop on a trolley car in San Francisco, go down to Chinatown, have some Chinese food, which was her favorite and his favorite, and they're going to buy a souvenir and watch a movie together, shop around a little bit, then get a taxi back to the hotel, and they were going to go swimming in the pool, even if the pool was closed. She said her dad had a reputation for being able to get into the pool, even if the pool was closed. They were going to go swimming in the pool, and afterwards they were going to go back up to the room, they were going to get some hot fudge Sundays from room service and watch the Late Late Show. They had planned out every minute. They had talked about it multiple times. Everything was going as planned. They were at the back of the conference room, and then one of his college buddies walked up to him, thanked him for the seminar speech that he had given, was excited that, that, that he was going to be working with the same company. 
and said that his wife and he, the college buddy, said, we'd love to take you and your daughter, Cynthia, out for dinner tonight. We'll go down to the wharf. We'll buy you seafood. We'll have a great time. And the dad said, that sounds great. And Cynthia said, at that moment, her heart just sank because her dreams were smashed. So as a 12-year-old, she says, I'm going to sit here and listen to adult conversation now. I'm going to be bored out of my mind. We're never going to do any of the things that we said that we were going to do because dad's got to keep his college roommate happy. But then his dad said, that sounds great, but I can't do it tonight because I have a date with Cynthia. And they left. They stopped the conversation, headed out, got on the trolley car, and they had their date. And what it showed the daughter was he didn't just say stuff. He backs it up with his life. And what got me, I was reading it. It was a leadership book. Just a, it was a secular leadership book I was reading. And I turned the page, and I realized that the, they, they said the guy's name was Stephen Covey. I don't know if you know Stephen Covey or not, but he's famous for saying, keep the main thing the main thing. He didn't just say it. He lived it. And he lived it with his family. And for me, even though it wasn't a Christian book, I put it down and I thought, my kids aren't going to care whether I can preach. They're going to want to know, do I love Jesus? My kids aren't going to care whether I can teach you Ephesians 5 and husbands, how you're supposed to love your wife. They're going to want to know, do I love their mom? Kids don't care if I share the gospel with hundreds or thousands of people at the same time. They're going to see when we're hanging out with each other, do I do it when it's one-on-one? Do I care enough about people to do that? They want to know, do you live it out? This audience can hear Jesus say these big words, and it sounds great, but can you do it, Jesus? That's the question, and that's what Mark shows us. They're not just amazed because he's a good teacher. Look what happens next. While he's teaching, and they're amazed at his teaching, verse 23, just then, while that's happening, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And we don't know if us means multiple inside. We don't know if he's referring to himself and the man, if he's talking about himself and all other demons. Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And what we're seeing happen here is a, a spiritual battle. Let me just pause and say this before we jump into dissecting this passage. There, we talk about demons. There are usually two extremes that people go to. One extreme is demons are behind everything. Every, you know, light flickers and the demons are in it. The sound system doesn't work today. It must be demons in the wires. Like, there's all kinds of problems in that. And the devil made me do it. And people go to that extreme. The other extreme is people say that demons don't exist and uh, superstition is just a way to explain stuff we don't like, and so they pretend like it's not real at all. Let me say this. Some bad things happen in our lives because we make bad decisions, and we reap the consequences of those bad decisions. We have to take responsibility for those bad decisions. But the demonic is real. And Paul talks about it in Ephesians chapter 6 when he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the dark authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's stuff that's taking place around us all the time that we do not see. And I'm going to tell you, oftentimes it happens in our head, the battle of truth and lies. And I want you to think about this passage of Scripture, that this guy sitting in this synagogue in Capernaum, this upscale town, and no one knew he was demon-possessed before this moment. So let me ask you this. First of all, why is he at the synagogue? Did he come there to cause problems? Have you ever met church members and think they might be demon-possessed? I have. (laughs) Not you, of course. Others. They're in the first service. (laughs) I told them something. You're right. 
Well, this guy's blending right in. Which makes me then think about our North Raleigh environment. How many people are sitting here today in this room and at churches all around the triangle and no one has a clue what's going on in their life? I was talking with a pretty smart guy this week, friend. We are actually talking about high school students, but I think the truth applies to all of us. And he said, you know, they live in a world where their greatest fear is that people are going to find out the real them. And they have another fear, though, and that fear is they're terrified that no one will ever really know them. And they're trapped. And how many people is that true of? Not just high schoolers. Because I know when he said it, I thought, I can relate. So here's this guy. He's sitting in the synagogue. No one even knows he's demon-possessed until he cries out. Why is he there? Is he there to cause problems? It seems to be that's what he's doing. Or is he there because he's hurting and he thinks that maybe this is a place to get help? We don't know. We don't know much about him. We don't know his age. We don't know how long he's been like this, but we know he's demon-possessed. And I asked myself when I was looking at that, what is it like to be demon-possessed? Josephus, the Jewish historian, talks about demon possession. We see a lot of the activity in the Gospels. In fact, a lot more in the Gospels than we did in the intertestamental period, than we do in the Old Testament, and than we do in the early church history. And so it's like when Jesus is on earth, the demons are far more active. You see them far more. It's almost like he's stirring them up. Because they know who he is. You see here he gives his heavenly name and his earthly name. Of course they know who he is. Isaiah chapter 14, we see that Satan and the demons were serving with God in eternity, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit before they were cast out of heaven. So yeah, they know him. You re it's real interesting if you read the New Testament. Demons have great theology. Even the demons believe and shudder. So what's going on here? What's it like to be this guy? And Josephus says that many times demons, and every demon's probably different, so you can't just give one stereotype of what it's like, but many times people would be put in a frenzy. So in their thinking and in their behavior, They'd experience strangulation and suffocation, Josephus said. And I read that, and I, I thought, I know two people that have unexplainable experiences where they were being suffocated, there was no one there. And both of those people were involved in sexual sin at that time. But you're not battling just against flesh and blood. There's something else going on. I might not be able to explain it. I know what I think was happening. And what we see in this passage is we enter right into a spiritual battle. What's happening here when this demon calls Jesus by name? It's not just that he has good theology. He says here, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Which I think is an interesting statement. I mean, can you imagine your sports team? Oh man, they showed up. We're going to get destroyed. Like they're defeated before it even begins. But they know that God's plan, what he's there to do. 1 John 3, 8. Jesus comes to destroy the work of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. They already know they're defeated. But what they're trying to do when they state the name of Jesus of Nazareth, not just Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus and your location of Nazareth, his earthly name and his location, and then also his heavenly name, the Holy One of God. He's trying to gain authority over Jesus. It was believed in this time that if you knew someone's full identity, that you could gain authority over them. Parents, you know what, what I'm talking about. Say your kid's middle name. I remember when I was a kid, my mom would say, Scott, Michael Lear. This is prior to political correctness, so I knew I was about to receive a prior to political correctness discipline. <laughs> and she had authority in that moment over me. There was like a power over me. This demon's trying to gain power over Jesus, trying to get control over Jesus. And it's interesting what Jesus does, and we'll look at what he does here in a second, in the next verse, before we get to that. 
when I was studying this passage, I was reading some of the things that people would do to try and exercise demons because this one, Jesus wasn't the only one that encountered them. So people would have demons in them and they would go to different extreme measures to try and get them exercised. Most common um, probably was having an exorcist come and they would say some incantation over you, like a formula of saying long list of the right words and as long as they were said in the right way, you depended upon the formula in order to cast the demon out. Some people would take um, stinky roots and stuff them up their nose, which I thought, junior higher came up with that? Like, who's that idea? Terrible for the person. Some people tried, I, I think the pronunciation is tray panning, where they drill a hole in their head, try to let the demon out. And you can read all the weird stuff that people did, but what it did for me is it did trigger my compassion. Because I thought to myself, I don't know what it's like to be demon-possessed, but whatever it's like, it's so bad that you would try these things. You would go to these extreme measures. And then I think about Josephus saying the frenzy that people would experience. And, and, and we know that the Satan is the father of lies, and so we know the fruit of the Spirit is peace and joy and self-control, and so the spirit that's inside this man is going to be the opposite of that. Jesus, when he's speaking to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they think that they're in God's kingdom because of their birth, they were born into a good family, he says to them in John chapter 8 and verse 44, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. He's telling them they've been deceived. Look at what he says next. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. So there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So who knows what lies this man is believing and what's happening here and the frenzy of thinking. And I haven't been demon-possessed. I've shared with you before. I have struggled with anxiety. And when I would have panic attacks, oftentimes it would happen when I was praying. And my thoughts would start racing faster. I couldn't control them. I couldn't slow them down. And look at what Jesus says. No incantation, no weird stuff going on. He says here in verse 25, Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Now, I'm glad you had your 13 and unders go out of here. So I'm going to share something with you that I may not share if they were here. It says um, here that he says, be quiet. That's a very nice translation. Several commentators I read shared that what he said here was not polite in the conversation in this time. Jesus says to the demon, shut up. So the demon's crying out, we know who you are, Jesus of Nazareth, holy one of God. Shut up. Be silent. And then I put myself in the place of that man, and I think to myself, what was that like for that guy? With the frenzy of thinking and all the stuff that's happening and the lies that are continually taking place in his mind, and then all of a sudden it's just quiet. I was having lunch with a guy from our, our worship team a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about worship. We are talking about our next worship pastor, talking about worship here at Southbridge and personal worship, and we were sitting down at um, uh, Panera Bread down on Glenwood Avenue, not the one here in Briar Creek, but the one down uh, closer to Providence Church. I don't know if you've been there before or not. Lots of windows. You look right out at, at Glenwood Avenue. And we were talking, and I said, I was sharing with him, I said, I think people hate silence. You know, you see people always have their headphones on. I said, and I looked out at all the cars. I said, of all those cars out there, how many of you do you think don't have their radio on or aren't messing with their phone? I said, and they might be listening to good stuff. Maybe it's David Crowder, maybe it's Hillsong, whatever good stuff, the Gaithers, whoever it is you listen to, they might listen to good stuff, but most people are doing it just so they have noise, so they have business, so they have distraction, they don't like silence. What was it like for this guy to all of a sudden experience silence? And I wonder, because Jesus says that Satan is the father of lies, you know what he says about himself? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You know what the antidote to lies is? It's truth. 
And what does Jesus say in that same passage of scripture in John chapter 8 when he tells the Pharisees that their father's the devil and that he is the liar and he's the father of lies and he continually is telling us lies. What does he say in John chapter 8 earlier in verse 32? He says, then you'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. That's the antidote to lies. In verse 36, he says, so if the son who is the truth sets you free, you will be free indeed. I wonder if in this moment, when it's silence for this man, if God spoke truth into his life. I know for me in that battle with anxiety, there were times where I'd be praying and the thoughts would be going crazy. But there were two distinct moments that I remember very vividly in prayer where the Lord then just spoke truth. It was simple truth both times. The first time that he did it, I remember he spoke truth to me about grace and he just said, Scott, the grace you preach about for all those other people, it applies to you too. Now I already knew the information. I had been preaching it to you. But it was like now I had experienced it. I remember another time, the other time was when he just told me he loved me. And it was, uh, it doesn't matter what you do, it doesn't matter what you've done. You can't do anything to make you lo- me love you less. You can't do anything to make me love you more. I love you. And I wonder what truth he spoke into this man's life. What truth do you need to speak into your life? Maybe your issue is like Chris's issue. And there's a battle of lies. You know what the lies are? The lies are, maybe that guy can be free. You can never be free. You'll never measure up. You're never good enough. The stuff your pastor talks about, the stuff you read about in the Bible, it, apply, it doesn't apply to you. Here's why you're the exception, and the lies come. What truth does God need to speak into your life? The truth is the antidote to the lies. See, oftentimes we mystify all the spiritual battle, and it's got to be a little demon on this side, and a little angel on this side, but the reality is it's happening in our heads, and it's a battle between truth and lies. And I wonder what truth was spoken into this man's life in this moment. Because what we see next is amazing. Jesus says, shut up and get out. Shut up, he says to, Jesus said sternly, and come out of him. Verse 26, the evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. He obeyed. And the guy set free. Amen? Now, we don't know this guy's name. We don't know if he shows up again later. In in the Gospels, we don't know how long he was like this before this. Here's what we do know from this moment on. He's free. Because when the sun sets you free, you are free indeed. We do know that he was trapped in a prison of lies. We do know that he's now set free to walk in the truth. And we do know that God did that in this passage of Scripture. And we also know that God still does that today. We saw it with Chris. We've seen it with other people. A couple weeks ago, there was a, a woman named Margaret. She stood up here and she talked about she was in a prison of judgmental spirit of her own. Well, she had her own issues, alcoholism. And God set her free. I had a guy who shared uh, this past week at Celebrate Recovery, and maybe he'll share someday with you too, Rob Walls, leader in our church, small group leader and teacher in Sunday school. He got control issues, and those control issues impact on his family, and God set him free. He had people set free from codependency, had people free, set free from drug addictions, had people set free from anxiety they struggle with, had people set free from pornography, He's still setting people free, so you know what that means? He can do it for you. That's truth. What area of your life are you not experiencing the freedom of Christ? Why can he do this? Well, Jesus can do it because he's the one who has ultimate authority. See, this message is not just about the concept of freedom. It's not about following some steps. It's not about being in a program. It's not about knowing just the right fact. If you knew this fact, if you tried this hard, it's about the person of Jesus Christ. Because look what happens next. 
He is the ultimate authority. Remember back in verse 22, they're amazed at his authority as he teaches. Then he does this stuff. In verse 27, the people were all, all of them, so you can circle that, all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. Then the next word, he. It's about the person of Jesus. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Maybe we should too. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. The reason why he's able to do this is because he has ultimate authority. We saw it in verse 22. They're amazed at his teaching because he doesn't teach like the teacher of the law. He just say a bunch of stuff about God. He has an authority. Then he casts out the demon. And we see it's not just something he says. He actually backs it up with his life. He has an authority. And most of us don't like authority. Here's why we don't like authority. Because we're sinful. End of message. No. Here's the deal. Oftentimes we have this, this concept, this false concept about freedom. We think that freedom means that we just get to do whatever we want. Let me, let me debunk the lie of that for just a moment. The alcoholic does whatever they want. They want to drink, and it's destructive. It's destroying their life. It destroys their families. It destroys everything around them. The person who's hooked on porn wants to look at porn. They're doing what they want to do. That's not freedom. The reality is that every one of us, human beings, created people, creatures, are under authority. My kids say to me sometimes, I can't wait till I'm an adult, and then I don't, no one can tell me what to do. And I laugh as I pull up to a stop sign while they say it. Like we all have authority in our lives. Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 6. Don't you know that when you offer yourself to someone to obey him as slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey? Sounds like a riddle. It's a real straightforward statement. You obey whoever you serve. Whether you are slaves to sin, here's your choices which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. You're a slave to one or the other. When you're a slave to anything other than Jesus Christ, it leads you ultimately to bondage. You'll be in bondage to that thing, and it's not what you were created for. When you're a slave to Jesus Christ, you have a good authority. See, oftentimes we don't like authority. We're afraid of, because both are sinful oftentimes in human structures, right? The authority is sinful, and the people that are subject to authority are sinful. And so they don't want to submit, and then the people that have the authority, they want to abuse it, and so there's this constant tension. But Jesus Christ has shown himself as the perfect son of God who's loving and leading, and he uses his authority to guide you and direct you in truth for what you were designed for. Real freedom is not that you do what you want to do, it's you do what you ought to do, what you were created to do. And so Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, demonstrates his authority throughout the Gospels. We see it here in this passage. He's got authority over demons. Okay, that's one. Check that list. We'll get to chapter two. He tells a guy, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. People start thinking, not saying, start thinking, who can forgive sins? and for God alone. Jesus knows what they're thinking. He's got authority over thoughts. And so, so that you know, I can forgive sins. That's why I tell this, tell this guy, let's get up and walk. I'm going to walk out of here. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. And then we'll see he's got authority over the Sabbath. And then we're going to see he has authority over what's clean and what's unclean. And ultimately we see the demonstration of his authority when he goes to the cross and he's crucified and he hasn't committed any crimes. And he's dying for your sin and for my sin and he's buried. And three days later, when it's clear that he's dead, he really died, he's raised from the dead to show he's got authority over death. Colossians tells us what happened in that. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15, remember Ephesians 6 when I read this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities. Wait, who do we battle against? Ephesians 6, 12. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The cross is the ultimate demonstration of his authority. And so they're all amazed at the person of Jesus Christ. Not just that he's able to give freedom, but who he is as the liberator. 
And so what's interesting, I told you to remember the, the person that was the ruler of the synagogue. His name is Jairus. I keep reading in the book of Mark. We'll get to chapter 5. In chapter 5, there's a guy named Jairus. And his daughter gets sick. And she's so sick, it looks like she's going to die. I think it's so interesting that the Jews hate Jesus. They get upset that he's teaching like this with different authorities, proclaiming himself to be God. And so they think that he's committing blasphemy and they're worried about losing their power structure and all those things. And Jairus is part of that group. But Jairus doesn't go to his Jewish buddies when his daughter's sick. And he doesn't go to even his religion. He doesn't go to all the people at his synagogue. You know who he goes to? He goes to Jesus. Remember verse 27 says, all the people were made. Jairus was one of the all the people. But it's not that his daughter's demon-possessed. His daughter's sick. But I know a guy, if he, can do, if he can do that in that guy's life, maybe he can help me. What do you think all the other people thought that were there that day? Maybe they didn't have a demon in them. Maybe some of them did. If he can set them free, maybe he can set me free. If he can set Chris free, maybe he can set you free. Set Jim free, maybe he can set you free. Set me free, maybe he can set you free. And Jarius goes to Jesus, and we'll get into the whole story when we actually get to that passage. It's going to be a little while, so I'll just tell you. He goes to Jesus, and then while he's there, he's told that his daughter dies. And then Jesus shows he has authority even over death. And he raises that daughter. He can set you free. But here's what's going to happen. Some of you, some of you here today, and uh, you're pumped about what God's doing. What God's doing at our church. Um, you Maybe you're new here. And you're, you're ready to get involved. You're, you want to be in. And for some of you, let me tell you what's going to happen. And this sounds so cynical, but I'm just going to be honest with you. Some of you will not be here in a year. Maybe a year and a half. And uh, you're going to make some bad decisions. Maybe get involved in a relationship that you knew wasn't healthy. Or just make some other bad decisions. Well, we might follow up with you if we, if we know that you're gone. And call you up. And you might say that you're at another church. And maybe you will be. Maybe you won't be. Maybe you're sporadic in your attendance there. But you know what I hope happens to you? I hope. I hope. You don't remember necessarily this message or what happened in Chris's life and how God set Chris free or what's happened in any other person's life, but Jesus is the one that can do it. And that you would go to Jesus Christ and he can restore the years that are wasted. He can put the pieces back together. He can remove the shame. He can deal with the unforgiveness. Now, the great thing that you could do would be just to put yourself underneath his authority now and then walk in that freedom the whole time. But the reality is we know I've just been here long enough now to know that this is what happens. Some of you won't but know that you can come back and that Jesus will always be there for you and that he can set you free. And some of you need to be set free today. And we're going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a moment. We're going to bow our heads and we're going to pray, but for some of you, that's just the beginning steps. Like Chris said, and God's doing a work. And we talk about that Philippians 1, 6. He's doing a work in us. He's going to faithfully complete this work. And he, it's not just always an instantaneous thing that happens. It's sometimes it's the process working through stuff. So for some of you to walk in freedom, it's going to mean confessing sin, it might mean confessing to a spouse. It might mean confessing to your small group leader. It's going to mean walking in discipleship, which may need that you might need some pastoral counseling. We offer that as a church. So in your worship program, just check that you want pastoral counseling, and you'll be contacted by one of our pastors. Some of you might need more than pastoral counseling. Pastoral counseling is oftentimes we'll, we'll pray with you, and we'll share the scriptures with you. But there are trained counselors sometimes that are good at asking questions, and sometimes people need to go further and get into this. They'll ask the right questions to ask you some of the why. Like Chris shared in his, he knew some of the why of what he was doing. Why he's going, why he's looking for escape in this. And there are trained people that are good at getting to those 
those hard issues that are still going to point you to Jesus. And so we've got some flyers on your way out over by the offering box where we give away the Bibles. Those Bibles are always free, by the way, too. But there's some flyers over there for cross-point counseling. We know they're a Christ-centered place that's connecting people to Jesus. And so you want to just discreetly grab one of those on your way out? That might be a next step for you. For some of you, celebrate recovery. They're going to have a table out in the lobby. And maybe you don't need to go to the table. Maybe you just need to show up Thursday night, 7 o'clock. That's where you get started. But I don't want you to be like the people in this passage. They left amazed at what Jesus could do. Don't just be amazed at what Jesus can do. Ask yourself the question, what does he want to do in you? Let's pray. Father, we come before you today, and uh, we are so thankful that you are the liberator. We're so thankful that you sent your son Jesus to pay for our sins, to pay the debt so that we could be freed from our debt, that you sent your son Jesus to set the captives free, that we'd be released from the oppression, from the bondage, that you sent your son Jesus, who is the truth, and that you would give truth in the place where there's lies. And God, I pray that you'd speak truth in the hearts right now, even for some, even while I'm talking, just give them moments of silence and speak truth into their lives. Give people the boldness and the courage to walk by faith, to walk with you, like Chris was saying, to walk in relationship with other people. They're going to keep sharing the truth. God, help us to be a community of people that will do that with one another. Father, help us to expose things that are in the darkness, to be in the light. If somebody ever going to say to us, did you do that? We'd say, yeah, we did. And it's true. But then we point them to our Redeemer, to our Savior, as the power to make us more than conquerors over sin and over death and over darkness. We love your Son, Jesus. Thank you for having him love us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand.